Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 150 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. On today's episode, veteran and mental health advocate Maureen Elias joins the show to talk about legislative and community advocacy for suicide prevention. As we have gone around and done these community presentations, we put a lot of our our personal selves into the presentation. And um, I myself went through a period where I was feeling um, suicidal. And as I share that experience, you know, I watched the shoulders in the room relax as they realized like what they're going through or what they've been through. They're not alone. There's this, this collective sigh of relief as they realize that we've created a safe space in which they can talk about those things that are so very painful or so very sensitive and tender to their hearts. And, um, you know, there's, there's usually a couple of people that end up in tears, um, because they have found somewhere where they don't have to hide their hurts anymore. And it's really neat to be able to be a part of that experience and to hear, you know, what they've been through. So this is the 150th episode of the Headspace and Timing podcast. And for those of you who are listening, I appreciate the feedback and the support that we've received over the last couple of years. We're going to be putting new guest interviews on hold while I develop a new project co-hosted by Doc Shauna Springer, the Senior Advisor for Suicide Prevention and Postvention for the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. The new show will be called Seeking the Military Suicide Solution and will bring the knowledge of experts on suicide in the military community to the communities that need it. Headspace and timing will remain active, though. I'll be going back and putting together shorter episodes based on previous conversations, so keep subscribed, keep listening, and keep giving feedback. To keep up with all the latest, sign up for our newsletter by going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash update. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking your time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. 
Uh, I'm really excited to bring on today's guest. I've, uh, I've been friends with, uh, with my guest, uh, for a very long time, um, and, and highly respected individual, um, does a lot of legislative work and, and is very passionate about veteran mental health. Um, really, you know, sometimes that we have some national partners that come on or some people that are doing great work in the national level and Marine is absolutely doing that. Um, but also we bring on veterans who have their own personal stories around, uh, mental health and wellness and, and Marine obviously fits that bill as well. So my guest today is Marine Elias. Marine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dwayne. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Definitely, and you and I have been talking fairly regularly about a number of different things. Um, but most recently, um, I, I was asking some of the attendees of the VA DOD Suicide Prevention Conference about how it was for them. I wasn't able to go. I was all conferenced out this year and, 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 uh, uh, budget and time wouldn't allow it. Um, definitely want to get into your experience there. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. For sure. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. I sure appreciate your time. Um, I am a U.S. Army veteran. I served on active duty for five and a half years as a counterintelligence agent. I met and married my sweetheart at AIT, uh, which of course brings all the stigmas that go with it, but we just celebrated our 18 year anniversary. Um, together we have three beautiful children who all fall on the autism spectrum, which brought its own challenges and delights throughout our life. And um, I have currently been serving in an advocacy position for the last two and a half years. When I got my master's in mental health counseling, this was definitely not the, the career that I pictured. I figured I'd be sitting in an office doing therapy. You know, when I started my program, I really wanted to be the person to help veterans find healthy lives um, emotionally. But then I attended the High Ground Veteran Advocacy Fellowship which Christopher Goldsmith and a couple of his friends started. And that was my first peek into what advocacy was. At that point, I didn't really know what it was. So I just thought, well, let's try this. It sounds kind of cool. Um, and after I walked the skin off of my feet running around Capitol Hill and learning how to, how to do the work, I was absolutely hooked. Um, it was like crack. It was really uh, the high that you get from from engaging the lawmakers and, and sharing your story and, and telling them what needs to be fixed in order to make things better is absolutely um, addicting. And so my career took a very sharp right turn at that point, and I looked and was lucky enough to find a position that allowed me to continue to be an advocate nationally. And so that's what I've been doing for the last two and a half years. It's been interesting because not only am I a veteran, but I'm also a military spouse. And so while my husband is currently stationed in California, I'm traveling cross country multiple times a month to do the work in DC and then rushing home to take care of my, my family and, uh, you know, be a part of this family here in California. So it's been, it's been a, an interesting bi-coastal life. I think I have about 500,000 frequent flyer miles. So we're going to Hawaii. Um, and other than that, I am an active geocacher. I did not know what that was. Um, at first, but my friends Tammy Barlett and Rebecca Patterson got me hooked on it. And uh, so I've even got my family hooked into it now. And so as I travel around the nation going to all the conferences, I've been geocaching as well. So I have all these little stickers um, on my phone from the places that we found geocaches. 
That's great. No, and it definitely uh, is a pastime. It's like uh, Pokemon <laughs> Go for adults, um, yes. sort of. Is is one of the, only in the real world with real life and not uh, <laughs> not staring at your phone. And and uh, I, I really appreciate. Um, we don't know what paths, like you said, that we're going to take. Um, and, and as you and I have talked very often, is there's a necessity for advocacy. Not a lot of people really understand what that is, but legislative advocacy. But it's really about speaking up for those who served and being a conduit and being a voice, um, you know, not in a lobbyist way, but, uh, but to be able to influence legislation. Uh, and, and that's really, um, it's really important. And obviously one of the biggest things right now is the topic of uh, service member, veteran military family suicide. Uh, you and I, um, again, have been talking frequently just, uh, yesterday as we're recording this, the VA, um, published their latest 2017 numbers regarding veteran suicide, uh, as they describe veterans. And so, uh, obviously we're having a lot of conversations around this and, uh, and you had just attended the VA DOD suicide prevention conference. So I'd like to hear sort of your initial thoughts about that. It looked really well attended. Uh, it looked, um, you know, it, for me, there was a little bit of uh, FOMO of not attending. Um, but uh, so what was it like for you? So this was my first VA DOD suicide prevention conference. And um, I have all the things to say about it. Uh, first off, um, the amount of research and the quality of research that was being presented was awesome. And all the different perspectives that everyone had, all the things that they were looking into, it did feel a bit like drinking from the fire hose because each session opportunity had about 11 to 12 breakout sessions. And each one of them were so amazing that it was hard to choose which one to attend. Um, I think some of my favorites were the one that talked about the, um, the risk, the increased risk of multiple suicide attempts among um, survivors of intimate partner violence. And uh, I thought it was really fascinating because we don't usually talk about the, the multiple suicide attempts. I think there's this among the general population, there's this understanding that if we if someone is suicidal and we intervene and we get them help, that all of a sudden they're better and they probably won't ever do that again. And that's not always the case. Sometimes it is, but it's not always. And so it was really interesting to, to hear that research. Another one was uh, the person who presented on adverse childhood events. And the later on risk of veteran suicide, you know, it's logical and it makes sense to us. But until we have the research behind it, you know, we it's hard to push for policy change because everyone wants to see the numbers. They want to see the research. And so uh, it's exciting to see to see that research to back up what we kind of already believed to happen, especially those of us in, in the mental health field. Uh, that just seems kind of like a duh. But if we don't have the research, <laughs> we can't we can't argue as effectively. Um, and then the, uh, the quality of the exhibitors. Um, I, I struggled because there was only about an hour of time per day really for us to, um, interface with the exhibitors. And every single one of those booths that was there are people who are actively, um, and effectively working to address, uh, mental health and or suicide and other, uh, you know, things such as PTSD, other mental health, um, issues within the military community. And then, um, it was fun. One of the things that was really great was the access to those top level leaders of the VA. I got to meet Matt Miller. I got to meet um, the director of the VA mental health uh, suicide program um, and 
some of the other leaders that were there. I ran into Heather Kelly, who I know has been on your show. She's an absolute delight to be around. And so all across the board, I feel like it was a very valuable event to have attended. And uh, I just wish that it had been a little longer to give us more time to to drink in all of the information. But also, you know, by the third day of the conference, you're like dragging your legs across this because you're so tired. You're you're almost like conferenced out. And it was my fourth conference in two weeks. So I was definitely like exhausted, but it was, I'm very glad I went. I feel like it was a very valuable use of my time. And uh, the the difference among the attendees was what I think was the most fascinating because we had everyone from uh, veterans who had been through suicide attempts themselves to those high level VA leaders, to people who are working in the community, to people who are working in, in national veteran service organizations, to people who have started their own orgs. And so the conversations in between all of the sessions were also super valuable as we networked and connected with one another and, you know, found out, Hey, what's working for you? What's not working for you? And, and traded insider tips and tricks, so to speak. You know, that's great. And, and, um, <laughs> doesn't make me any less jealous for not being able to go, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, you know, and some people may be listening to this. I mean, I guess we all have our thing, right. You know, but, um, but it is one of those things that a lot of the information is coming out of these, uh, these conferences. Um, and unfortunately, um, I don't want to say they tend to end at the conferences, but everything that you learned and everything that you, um, uh, sat through and, and you mentioned, you know, two of the sessions out of the probably dozens that you went to, um, and a whole exhibitor hall full of people. Um, but it was contained there and then it's left there. And, and all of that great information only lives in the minds of those individuals that happen to have, um, attended those breakout sessions. And so, um, on one hand, while it's very encouraging that so much is being done to, to sort of, um, to capture this and distribute this at the same time, not enough is being done to get that information into the hands of the people that need it. Yes. The people that are on the street getting the work done. Um, I know I came back and, and shared the information with my team uh, to make sure that they had access to it. But, but you're right. Like there is a bit of an information gap. You know, there was so much fantastic research. Um, I don't know if the VA has plans to, to share that with the uh, general population. I mean, for the research, eventually those research studies will be published, but, but there's no way to like, uh, send up a flag and let us know, Hey, check out this, this research study that just came out that, that you should be aware of. We have to dig through the research and find it ourselves. Yeah. And, and of course, also, um, you being, uh, having a background in clinical mental health and me being a clinician, um, <laughs> all of those, those research articles are not, I don't even like reading them sometimes, right? I mean, they can just trying to get through them. Um, but it's great information and in learning how to translate that into, um, information that people need. For example, you talked about, uh, intimate partner violence and you talked about adverse childhood experiences and their impact on later suicidality. Those are environmental factors, right? Those are environmental factors within a relationship, how someone's relationships, even the matter of, of, you know, uh, sustained you know, intimate partner violence with a power and control versus situational intimate partner violence in which maybe the, um, uh, uh, you know, it's co-combative or something like that. I mean, it's so complicated even in that. And then the environment of our childhood, we've talked about this for you and I, and I've mentioned on the show, the military is as much a running away from something as it is <laughs> running to something. 
Um, a significant number of our most elite forces have had rough childhoods, which have allowed them to grow and be stronger having gone through adversity, while at the same time, those exact same childhoods put them at greater risk for um, traumatic stress reaction once they get older. And so understanding these deeper nuances, it's challenging when we're just talking about, you know, X amount of number of veterans a day. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think some of it can get lost in the sauce. So one of the things that I, that I am working on right now is taking a lot of that research and bringing it down to the consumer level. Um, as part of the work that I do, I travel around the country with Dr. Thomas Hall, who is, um, a psychologist and we travel around the nation doing suicide risk and prevention, suicide, uh, briefings for the community. And so one of the, the, challenges that I have is to take that high level clinical research and bring it down to, to the consumer level so that they can understand their own risks. Because I think sometimes if we know, um, what our risks are, there are things that we can do to, to confront with and, and deal with those, those risks. Um, you know, one of the, one of the stories that I've started telling as we do those presentations that, that Dr. Hall loves is we all are born with this empty cup and I call it our trauma cup. And depending on the childhood that we had, we have, uh, you know, little bits of liquids poured into our cup as trauma events occur. And by the time we reach the military, some of us, our cup is maybe halfway full, a quarter way full, but some of us are coming in with a cup that's just about to overflow. And then we add in the, you know, the risks that come with military service, whether that be military sexual trauma, witnessing combat, witnessing the loss of, of someone that we care about in the field. Um, those things can definitely add to our trauma cup. And, and for some people in the military, that causes their cup to overflow. And then for others of us, we make it through military service and, and we're holding a very, very full cup, but it hasn't overflowed. But then we transition and that transition is rough and we go through a divorce or we have a hard time finding a job and that can then cause our trauma cup to overflow. And so one of the things that we can do to lower the level in our cup is to seek help from a mental health professional to get involved in activities and events within the community, which allow us to widen our circle of friends with which we can talk about the things that we've been through, which then I think help lower the level in our quote unquote trauma cup. And um, that story has been pretty well received in the communities that we've shared it with. Yeah. And, and absolutely. I mean, I've, I describe it as a bathtub, um, you know, but uh, I mean, but it, but it is different, right? Because if, if you have these, I mean, it's not different. It's, it's very much the same because you can have cinder blocks of things that happen in your life, right? So if you have a full container, um, whatever we talk about, um, and then you drop in that cinder block of the stress of transition or, um, you know, a, a significant event, maybe the loss of a loved one. Um, and then that's maybe not traumatic it, it, as far as a transition, not trauma, trauma, as we define it, um, in, in the clinical space. Um, it's still enough to cause that tub, that container to overflow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like that one thing that, that I use when I describe that is we have the, not everybody's container is the same size. Yeah. Uh, some people may be a, a teacup and the other may be a tea pitcher, right? And so, yeah. um, this is some people have a lower threshold of absorbing trauma. Perhaps there's a level of resilience there. Um, regardless of the size though, if the person with the tea pitcher size, um, container, is exposed to enough trauma that gets filled just as much as, as, as others. Um, but also we can learn to grow the size of our container, our trauma container. Um, 
simultaneously while draining it out. That's why I use the bathtub analogy. You can drain it out the right way using, you know, supports and like you said, clinical support and things like that, rather than it going up and over the side of the bathtub. Um, but we can sort of build that resilience so that one, we have the ability to absorb more trauma and we have the ability to get rid of that trauma uh, so that it doesn't tend to overflow the container. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. And and so through your workshops that you're doing around the country, um, that you gave us one example of how well it's received. What type of organizations are you you providing these workshops for? What's the... Um, we were talking about our, our mutual friend, Tony Williams, and Tony always says that suicide is a national problem with a local solution. Um, so uh, how are organizations getting in contact with, with you or, or what type of organizations are getting in contact with you in order to get these workshops? So it's usually the chapters um, of Vietnam Veterans of America who bring us in. But when they bring us in, they bring the whole community to the presentation. So we have everything from like the, the uh, mortician or the medical examiners come in. We have, um, leaders from the community come in. We have members from the community come in. When we were doing a presentation up in Johnstown, it was really fascinating. And, um, since then we have actually broadened our, our scope of who we talked to because we had a whole table of, of people from the Department of Corrections come. And we have actually expanded the category to not just veteran suicide risk, but to um, veteran and first responder suicide risk and prevention, because we found that there's a lot of parallels between the two communities, a lot of exposure to trauma, things like that. And um, the Department of Corrections table, when we were finished, came up and talked to us and they said, we have had like four suicides in the last two months. Like we, we needed to hear this. We want to have you come out and talk to our entire prison community. Um, and so, you know, when we talk about first responders, most people think firefighters, policemen, and EMT. Um, we've brought in that to ER nurses, to Department of Transportation individuals. Uh, at first, we had someone come up who was like, have you considered the Department of Transportation? And we were like, not really, because it's like bus drivers and stuff. And she was like, you know, my father was a metro driver and someone jumped in front of his train. And he was exposed to trauma and someone else had spoken about how it's the Department of Transportation folks who have to come and clean up after a child is struck and died from a car accident. And so, you know, to me, I think the the suicide risk and prevention presentation that we give really resonates among any community that is that is um, continually exposed to various forms of trauma. And uh, so, you know, it's interesting as we, as Dr. Hall and I have done the, 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 the work is all the parallels that we have in barriers to care uh, between the veteran and first responder suicide. And a lot of veterans do go into the first responder suicide, I think, or the first responder community, because I think that they, you know, they found again, a new tribe, a new brotherhood uh, that similarly matches that of the military. And so I think that's why we're also seeing a risk in or an increase in suicide risk when they leave that first responder community because you retire and you've lost that tribe and you're trying to redefine your purpose um, outside of, of that first responder community, which can be tough. Um, but some of the barriers to care are the same. You know, there's the fear of having your weapon taken from you um, as a police officer that puts you on desk duty that can really sideline your career. There's the the fear of looking weak in front of your peers because you're seeking out mental health, which is almost exactly what we hear uh, as far as why people in the military don't want to seek medical or seek mental health care. They don't want to get taken from the field. 
They don't want to appear weak. They don't want to lose their job. Um, and so it's really interesting to see some of those parallels. And I think if we can bring these communities together and help them recognize the, the parallels that they share, you know, together we're all stronger. And the more, the more we think we're different, the more the same we are. And so, you know, if we can get the first responders and the veteran communities together and talking about this and sharing our experiences, I think that we can create a more open community that, that would be more collaborative when it comes to doing this kind of work and, and getting more access to care and more, uh, barriers to care to, you know, become minimalized. At least that's my hope. <laughs> no, you're absolutely correct. Um, and, and I've said it here before on the show is, uh, we are having a national conversation around veteran, uh, suicide approaching or developing into, uh, service member family suicide, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not as widely discussed as uh, as veteran or soldier service member suicide, uh, but we're not necessarily having a national conversation around first responder suicide. Um, even as you were talking, I was thinking back to episode 130, um, uh, Joseph Smaro, who is a, um, a veteran, a Marine Corps veteran, who is also involved in their mental health response in San Antonio. Um, and he was talking about a, a, a police chief or a cap, you know, a commander. Somebody was really high up in the chain of command that approached him and said, you know, this is what I'm struggling with. But if anybody hears it, I'm retiring tomorrow. I'm dropping my retirement paperwork. And, and it's, there's this, um, the stigma and there's, there's national stigma around talking about this. There's national stigma around, um, even, like you said, admitting weakness. Um, but sometimes, um, not hearing the stories of others makes us seem like our story is the only story. I mean, uh, by, by keeping those secrets, we seem to be in isolation when we're not really. Right. Yeah. And as we have gone around and done these community presentations, we put a lot of our, our personal selves into the presentation. And, um, I myself went through a period where I was feeling, um, suicidal. And as I share that experience, you know, I watched the shoulders in the room relax as they realized like what they're going through, or what they've been through. They're not alone. And, um, there's this, this collective sigh of relief as they realize that we've created a safe space in which they can talk about those things that are so very painful or so very sensitive and tender to their hearts. And, um, you know, there's, there's usually a couple of people that end up in tears, um, because they have found somewhere where they don't have to hide their hurts anymore. And it's really neat to be able to be a part of that experience and to hear, you know, what they've been through. We had a, uh, an EMT who had tried to save a little girl. She was six or seven, I believe. And he gave her CPR for like two hours while waiting for um, other people would come and he just, he couldn't save her. And he's like, it's been 12 years and I still, you know, I still can't get over it. And that gave us the beautiful segue to talk about survivor guilt. Um, because I think that was part of what he had been through. You know, a lot of people think about survivor guilt as the guilt that you had survived, but, um, especially within the first responder community, there's that other side of the house where it's like, why couldn't I save her? You know, what could I have done differently that, that would have saved this person I was trying to save? Right. And, and as I've, I've talked before on the show, suicide is, uh, it's very complicated, obviously, but it's very basic. It is an attempt to stop pain. 
yes. uh, physical pain, right? There, there is certainly an element of that, the, the physical pain and suffering. And here this may apply more to sort of end of life care or, or someone who is, you know, experiencing some debilitating illness, um, or, or even chronic pain, um, you know, the suffering, that pain that doesn't end. Um, but also emotional pain, spiritual pain, um, you know, these type of things are the type of things that individuals use suicide to attempt to relieve um, because many times they don't feel like they have the hope to um, maybe get relief or to be able to solve it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So we do base a lot of what we share on Thomas Joyner's work. And um, he, you know, one of the myths that even I was raised with, you know, I remember going to our safety briefings every Friday and our sergeant major getting up there or first sergeant, whoever was there, you know, telling us, suicide is a coward's way out. So don't freaking kill yourself. Okay. You know, and, and so you get that, that mindset that like, oh, okay. So it's a selfish thing. But, but as I've read more and researched more and learned more, I realized that suicide is absolutely not selfish. Suicide is someone who is in such immense pain, whether that be physical, mental, spiritual, that they just, that seems that that's the only option that they see to end the pain. They just want the pain to stop. Now I, I myself have, have some, some service connected disabilities. And there are times when the, the pain level gets up to like the, the 12, 13 range. And I can absolutely understand why people who, who are in, you know, physical pain want to end it because it's just excruciating. And, uh, I've, I've also been on the other side of the spectrum when, when I had, um, just transitioned out of the military, I had a very sudden and quick transition because I was medically discharged. I found myself all alone in a community where being a veteran and being a woman weren't really accepted. And I felt very alone. So I hid that part of my identity. Um, and not to mention that I had two very small children who at the time I did not know had autism. And uh, it was a very lonely, difficult, hard time. Um, and I, I struggled, you know, my, my, my children, especially my, my middle child, she would scream for like, hours at end at this pitch that was just it, you, you think your ears would bleed and you know i'd look at these these beautiful family photos on social media and see these people who had everything going right and i'd look at my children and like if they were clean and dressed that was a huge success that was a big battle because of their sensory issues and of course the military decided that this was the perfect time to send my husband away for 22 months so not only was i alone as a woman veteran in a community a very traditional type community I was alone trying to raise these two children by myself. And so then um, the add on top of that, some of the pain that I went through because of the reasons that I was discharged from the military, like my trauma cup was totally at the overflowing role. And I found myself spiraling down into a depression. You know, I felt like such a failure because this, this army career that I, I had wanted forever. And, and I had planned on being a, a career army soldier was suddenly ripped away from me. Um, and then the, you know, I was born and raised in a faith where being a mother was a very important part of your life. And because my children were struggling so hard, I felt like I was failing at that too. So like the two things that I was supposed to be good at, I was, I didn't feel like I was succeeding. So I felt like a failure. I was super depressed. I stopped bathing very regularly. I stopped taking care of myself. Um, you know, people would total strangers felt like it was okay to walk up to me and say, your kids are horrible. You should just thank them. You're a terrible mom. You know, who says that to someone? 
Um, I had one woman come up to me. We were at Denny's on kids night. Now I knew that my children would need to learn how to eat appropriately in restaurants, but I also knew that their behavior was challenging. And so I took them to a Denny's on kids night. And I had this one woman tell me um, that I should take my crotch droppings and get the hell out of the restaurant. Like who says that to someone, especially on a kids night at Denny's. So I was, you know, things were pretty bad. And I found myself as I was in my, my mom minivan driving down the road, I found myself picking out the cliffs that I could drive off that would definitely end in certain death. I didn't want to get hurt. I wanted to, to end things so that, that I could stop being such a failure and stop being such a disappointment to myself and to everyone else. And, um, luckily I recognized those signs and immediately sought out professional help. And, um, you know, the therapist had a very different, uh, clinical, uh, orientation that I've ever had before. And he spent the hour just like yelling at me, but it was what I needed to kick myself into gear. And I picked myself up and, and continued to see a therapist and, and got things back to a, a healthier point. What also helped was, uh, like Thomas Joyner talks about the, the feeling of, of being alone, um, was one of the things I was struggling most with. So I called my brother-in-law who had just graduated high school. And I, I asked Arthur if he would come stay with me. I didn't need anything from him, but to just be with me and stay with me. And he was exactly what I needed in my life. And he was exactly what my children needed while my husband was away because he was calm and patient. And my little child who, who never, she was like a human pong ball. She never was still unless she was asleep, would curl up behind his back as he'd sit on the computer like a little cat and fall asleep. Like he was just the perfect salve for our life. Um, she had a, she had a milk sensitivity. And if she ate too much, she would throw up. And it would be these like big chunks of gross stuff. And I have a really weird sensory issue myself. And so to try to pick those gloves off before I put the clothing in the laundry, I just couldn't do that. Um, but we were poor, you know, at the time. And so we couldn't afford to just throw the clothes away. So my brother-in-law, bless his heart, would take the gloves off the clothes so I could wash them and she would have clean clothes. Uh, you know, just having someone to be there with me as I was going through this, this crisis in my life made all the difference in the world. And he was not judgmental at all. He just loved us for who we were and, and was there for us. And I think, uh, you know, when we talk about aloneness and suicide, we, we, we miss sometimes the conversation that it is perception. It's the perception of being alone. You know, I lived by my mother and her whole family. I had my sisters and brothers. I come from a huge family. There's 12 of us. Uh, I had them all around me. And yet I felt absolutely alone because that was how I perceived myself to be. And so, you know, a lot of times when we talk about suicide, we have to remember that perception is a big part of this. And so one of the things that Dr. Hall does in her presentations is he puts up a picture that looks like either a rabbit or a bird. And depending on which way you look at it, that's what it looks like. And um, so I think it's a rabbit or a duck. And he's like, if, if I look out the window and I see a duck, I'm going to live. If I look out the window and I see a bunny, I'm going to choose to die. And that is sometimes the strength that perception can have when it comes to suicide. You know, and that's, um, I really appreciate you sharing that story. Um, and again, this, this part of, um, I don't recall which guest uh, said it, but, but I've used it so often as secrets or termites of the soul, right? They, mm -hmm. they dig at us. Um, and, and if we keep those secrets to us, then they can, they can harm us. Um, and, and so just sharing your story and where you found yourself at such a critical point in your life, 
Um, and then how you pulled yourself back from the cliff. Um, that's how I describe it. Although many times, like for yourself, it is a very literal cliff. You've mentioned a couple times, uh, uh, Dr. Joyner in, in his, um, what you're referring to is the interpersonal uh, theory of suicide. Um, and I know it. I don't know that we've talked about it on the show. And so maybe this idea of what is, what is the interpersonal theory of suicide? Um, and, and maybe how did you see it applying? You mentioned that, um, and, and I'll just briefly um, start this. Um, it's isolation, a sense of isolation, a sense of loneliness, a sense of burdensomeness. Um, either you are burdened or you are burdening other people. Uh, and then the third, if we think about, you know, these three legs of a triangle, the third is the ability to access and, and act lethal self-harm. Um, so those, those are the three elements that if they are all there in the same place at the same time, then the individual is highly at risk for suicide. And you saw that play out in your experience. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think because I was struggling, uh, it was very hard for me to want to ask for help because I didn't want to burden my family, which they, you know, they were all raising their small children too. And I didn't want to be that military spouse who was like, I need all the help because my husband's deployed. Uh, I want to, you know, you want to be that strong person who's there for everyone else, um, which I think a lot of times caregivers we end up doing is we're everyone else's lifeboat until we're drowning ourselves. We don't always take the time for, for self-care. And so, you know, as one of the things I, I say that, that I think sometimes ruffles feathers is I think one of the reasons that, that we veterans are dying by suicide at such high numbers is unfortunately we're really good at using lethal means. You know, we're very comfortable with, with lethal means. And so, uh, you know, I was looking for something that I knew was going to work. I wasn't going to, to, um, try something where I knew I'd end up in the hospital and perhaps I could be saved. If I was going to do this, I wanted to make sure that I was gone and I was no longer a burden to anyone else. And, uh, so yeah, that's a big part of what we talk about is, is that perception that you're a burden or, or being alone. And then our, our comfort with, with using those, those lethal means and, and being in the military or being the first responder community, both communities are very comfortable with things that could be considered lethal means when it comes to suicide. Right. And this is one of the things where our military training that, um, allows us to engage in things that other people might find uncomfortable, um, uh, we sort of get desensitized to that, right? You know, the, the yep. largest Pavlovian experiment in the world is called airborne school, right? You just throw yourself <laughs> against the ground until a little green light comes on and you do something that you normally wouldn't do, which is jump out of a, well, it's the Air Force, not perfectly good airplanes, but airplanes that are flying nonetheless. Um, but, but that's one of the things is the military teaches us to do that and harness that, uh, in order to, get us to do what we need to do or, or enable us to be able to do what we do. And at the same time, that also increases our risk because we are comfortable with, um, you know, in inflicting harm or, or we do, it wasn't a question of, can I do this? Is this something that I can do? Um, it was more of, I need to find exactly the right one. That question of, do I have the ability to do this drive off the cliff or, or the weapon? It, those questions aren't in, they weren't in your mind and they're often not in veterans' minds. It's not a question of can I, it's a question of how will I or when do I? Right. 
Right. Yeah. You know, and, and something you talked about is, is something we talk about in our um, presentations as well is that vulnerability and we call it code switching, right? In order to deal with the traumas of what we have to do for work, whether that be, you know, pulling a weapon on someone if we're in the military or um, in the field of the first responders, it's, it's responding to a crash, it's responding to a domestic violence uh, situation. You have to turn on this kind of, you have to put on this emotional armor in order to deal with the traumas that you're about to deal with. Because if you don't, your body is going to just be like, holy cow, this is huge and this is traumatic and it's going to be freaking out when you need to be cool, calm and collected in order to handle the situation. And I think sometimes the problem comes when it's time to take off that armor and allow ourselves to be vulnerable again. I think that's why a lot of people describe themselves as feeling emotionally numb because in order to to be effective at our jobs, we have to put on that emotional armor and it becomes a lot harder to, to take it off. And I, you know, I, I joke at the presentations that I think veterans have a leg up here because we have to put that armor on for like nine months and then we come home. Whereas first responders, they have to put that armor on and take it off every day, every 12, 24, 8, 10, whatever shift they're working hours and then go home and be mom, dad, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, grandma, grandpa, whatever their role is in their, in their life. And eventually it just becomes almost impossible to take that armor off. And that's what leads to the, 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 it's a kind of tend towards that perception of being alone, uh, because you have a hard time connecting with others because you're, you're a little bit numb from the, the stuff that you have to deal with on a regular basis. Yes. Uh, I mean, that's absolutely right. I've heard it described as, um, if, uh, law enforcement, it's, it's 365 day long deployments. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and not only, and, and you've mentioned it a couple times, um, you are a woman veteran and you're a military spouse, a currently drilling military spouse. At some point, you will be both a veteran and a veteran spouse, as will your husband as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but law enforcement families, um, is that, you know, it's one thing for my wife to, sort of suppress the thought that when I went to Afghanistan, you know, I may or may not come home. Um, but a, a law enforcement officer spouse has that or could have that thought every morning. Yep. Multiple times a day, I would assume every time the phone rings, you know, when my husband was in Afghanistan, every phone call was the call. You know, I, I, I would start to almost have hyper arousal every time there was a call because he was in a, in an area that was being mortared daily. And they did lose people as they went out on convoys. And so, um, you know, for me, even when he was in Afghanistan and, and the likelihood of him dying wasn't super high, but it was definitely um, a possibility. Every call became the call that was going to be to notify me that, that he was dead. And I would imagine as a first responder spouse, um, every call can kind of become that call to you as well. And, and so in order to function in your life as a spouse, you have to kind of numb yourself to that reaction. Um, so that you can take care of the family, so you can take care of, of your job or whatever it is that you're doing in life. Um, and those are more cinder blocks in the container, right? I mean, those yep. are, that's, that just, uh, you know, and, and maybe if we can push the metaphor more, you just have this layer of silt that hardens at the bottom of, of your, your trauma or your stress container. Um, and then that's even less, uh, space for sort of the normal everyday. And so it doesn't take something big to sort of push somebody over the edge. Um, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing specifically regard, regarding, uh, uh, suicide. I, I know that, um, 
this is a topic that you're coming up when you're talking to legislators, right? When you're talking to, um, you know, lawmakers or, or staffers that may be making, um, a, um, decisions. How do we, um, affect effective legislation? Uh, you know, I mean, it, we're, everybody wants to try to do something, right? Everybody wants right. to try to, I mean, not, not to be seen doing something, but just the, the, the challenge is so heavy that, you know, everybody wants to do something to influence this problem. Um, I can imagine that you often get a lot of people say some very strange things that should be made into law in order to address the suicide epidemic in the service member, veteran, military, family population. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was at a briefing, and I don't remember which one it was. It was the fourth in a series of, of briefings. And one of the legislators stood up and was like, you know, we need to just leave it to the faith-based community to to prevent suicide. That's their role. And, you know, of course, I'm in the audience, so you're not allowed to speak at that point. And I was thinking, well, then you've just left out, you know, all of those people who don't have, you know, religious background. You know, what about them? Do they just, what happens to them? One of the things, actually, that that um, I've been trying to educate uh, policymakers on is the language that we use around suicide and how important that is. Because, you know, at these briefings I attend, a lot of them are broadcast on CNN. So they have a national platform where what they're saying is is being broadcast across the world. And, and you know the research that says, like, the language that we use can actually affect the suicide rate, whether that be positively or negatively. And they'll, they'll violate every one of the, the, um, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention or the American Association for Suicide Prevention's guidelines when it comes to media talking about suicide. They'll graphically describe in detail how someone has died by suicide or they'll use language that can be stigmatizing, such as saying committed suicide or, um, you know, talk about suicide in a way that can be very, um, stigmatizing. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is, is help educate policymakers on the appropriate language to use when you're talking about suicide, because it does matter. And they do have that national platform. Right. And, uh, and, and sometimes the people with the national platform, especially, you know, in sound bites, um, <laughs> you know, in, in, and this is not an easily packaged conversation. I mean, this is, uh, pulling the curtain back a little bit. People are like, wow, hour long podcast. Who has the time for all that? But <laughs> this isn't, this isn't necessarily something that we can talk about. <laughs> this is, this is episode 150, right? So this is 150 <laughs> hours of you're talking about mental health in general, but probably at least I would say nearly 20 of those hours just talking about suicide. Um, and I don't want to say that we even scratch the surface. We barely rub the surface of, uh, of, of what we're talking about. So, um, I, I think the national conversations need to happen. Um, but also the persistent conversations like this one and like you're having in communities around the country, I think it's important to continue to happen. I agree. Absolutely. I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to kind of talk about this. Um, uh, again, um, this is a subject that you and I, others have talked about. So it's, it's not something we shy away from. It may be something that people do shy away from because it's not talked enough, but I really appreciate you, uh, coming on the show and, and talking about it. 
If people want to maybe connect with you more, find out the work that you're doing. We didn't even get into the work that you're doing, um, you know, uh, with uh, you know, high ground and, and things like that. So how can people find you and what you're doing and connect with you, maybe online, social media, things like that? Sure. So um, you can always look me up on LinkedIn. I'm very responsive to LinkedIn messages. It's just Maureen Elias. And um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Maureen Elias, too. Um, and then you can always send me an email. Um, which is just marine.m.elias at gmail.com. Um, you know, when you, uh, when you talk about how it can be hard for people to talk about suicide, I think one of my most eye-opening experiences was as I was going through my internship at, um, Johns Hopkins, you know, and, and at this point I'd had three years of education and mental health and my first client came in and told me that they were actively seeking ways to kill themselves. I went into full-blown panic mode. Like I was not prepared for that conversation. Uh, because, you know, while we've, I'd learned all the statistics and things around suicide and I learned about safety planning and, and how to assess, I hadn't ever practiced having that conversation. And so in our presentations, one of the things that I do is have everyone in the audience turn to the person next to them and ask the question, are you thinking about killing yourself? And you would be surprised how strongly averse people are to asking that in the first place and how comfortable they report they are after they ask that question for the first time. And some people in the audience have responded affirmatively to that question. They've said, yeah, I actually, you know, four or five years ago, I was thinking about killing myself, but right now I'm in a good place. That's not a concern for me. And so just getting used to having that conversation, to asking the real question, are you thinking of killing yourself versus are you thinking of hurting yourself or harming yourself? Or doing uh, something really stupid make, or, yeah. Yeah, like exactly. Mm -hmm. Just ask the question because people who aren't, are going to, are going to tell you, no, I'm not at all. Like, don't, don't even think that. Why would you say that? But people who are, you might just be that conduit to saving the life or to at least helping get them to the place where their life can be saved. And that is what it's all about. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Brandon. Thank you all for listening. I sure appreciate it. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. I was glad to have been able to have Marine on the show to talk about this important topic. Many of us in the military veteran community are focused on suicide. It seems to be one of the first things that we bring up when we talk about veterans' issues. I felt that this was a great way to cap off this period of headspace and timing as I transitioned into the new project that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. We know the statistics around suicide. They're alarming. Simply raising awareness of a problem without pairing it to meaningful action promotes a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Seeking the Military Suicide Solution is a podcast that's designed to move us beyond awareness and into meaningful action. Whether it's social media posts, community conversations, or awareness demonstrations, it seems as though we are inundated with information on how to stop suicide in the military-affiliated population. And yet, numbers of service members, veterans, and their families are taking their own lives every day. Whether it's 17 a day, 20 a day, 22 a day or more, whether they're connected to the VA or not, whether they're high profile or they go unnoticed, one death by suicide in the military-affiliated population is one too many. At the same time, a significant amount of research on how to stop suicide in the military population is being conducted. Professionals across the country are helping those in the military population 
hold on to hope, and navigate challenges in their lives. Methods of prevention, intervention, and postvention are being developed and show promising results. The Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast will move beyond awareness into action by sharing what works, what doesn't, what gaps remain, and what you can do to stop suicide in your community. Marine's work is an example of what's being done both nationally and locally. This is a show that we could have saved for the new project, and we'll likely have Marine on that show, but I thought it would be a good segue into the new one. The Headspace and Timing podcast isn't going away, however. We will still be releasing new episodes every week, just shorter episodes of older conversations. That way, new listeners can discover these old conversations and share it with those who may need to hear it. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Find out more information, you can go to the show notes, which you can find at federalmentalhealth.com forward slash HST150. While you're there, hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice and leave an honest rating and review. It helps others find the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter by going to federalmentalhealth.com forward slash update. And you can join our growing community on Flick to get in on the new podcast, Seeking the Military Suicide Solution, by going to federalmentalhealth.com forward slash community. I'd also like to let you know of a series of webinars that I'm producing for NADAC, the National Association for Addiction Professionals. I'm presenting a series of six webinars on service member, veteran, and military family mental health. There'll be live webinars presented over the remainder of 2019, and after they're complete, they'll be available to watch on demand. See more about the series, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash NADAC to check them out. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness. You can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe in your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until next time, remember veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-created mini-me's Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
love you guys. Take those bottles out, dog, and pour them in the sink. Take the needles out your arm and the gun away from your forehead. It's time, man. You've been through enough pain. Stand up. It's time to stand back up. All my veterans, man. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard. Get up, you know. Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.